So we left off last week with the end of the Akedah, Akedat Yitzchak. Um, the previous Pesukim, would the Svaradim have a long tefillah at the end of uh, Parashat HaKedah. It starts off, Rebona Shalom, Kemoshe Kavashav Ramavino at Rachamav. It's a paraphrasing of the, of the tefillah that we say um, on Rosh Hashanah. The Svaradi version and the Svarad version is much longer, and it traces the um, zechus of the zechut, sorry, of um, Abraham Avinu and the Akedah all the way down to the eventual Geulah. All right, so now the next thing in the Svaradi order is Elu Devarim. So the, Ashkenaz, the, the Mishnah of Elu Devarim, She'en Lahem Shi'or. So the Ashkenazim actually put this a lot earlier. We saw initially um, from Tosafot in, in Birachot, Tosafot says that after Birchat Torah, um, the, the minhag was, the French, the French uh, Rabbanim instituted that the minhag should be that after Birchat Torah they would say three things. The, like the Gemara says in Kedushin, that a person should divide his time of learning between Mikra, Mishnah, and Gemara. Three different, um, you should divide your time in learning in those three ways. So at first they would say Birchat Kohanim, then they would say Elud Varim Shein Lahem Shior, which is a Mishnah, and then they would continue with a Brita section of Elud Varim, or they would say Ezehu Mikoman. So that was the, the the French institution all the way back in the let's say the 12th century. That's why the Ashkenazim still put it after Berkat Torah. So in the morning, where they say Berkat Torah, Berkat Konim, right after they put Elud Varim. Um, the Rambam put it also. Um, after Birkat Kohanim, but the Rambam's order, he puts Birkat, uh, Birkat Torah, then the Tamid, and then the Birkat Kohanim, and then he says Elud Varim. And the Tamanim still do it this way. Um, they, it's not clear exactly why they put Elud Varim all the way at the end. Maybe they borrowed the Minhag from the French. It's it's not clear why they have to put in Elud Varim, because Elud Varim is not a tefillah. It's, it's a Mishnah. So why they felt the necessity to actually say it, so much so that they put it all the way after Birkat Kohanim, could be that they just borrowed it. Anyways, historically, it's not clear. The Svaradim, we do it the way the Beit Yosef had it. So in the Torah, the Torah says, this is the way the Ashkenazim have it in, in our Sidur. And the Beit Yosef says, yeah, but in our Sidurim, it says it as follows. And he gives the order that we have in our Sidur, which is Akedah, Elut Varim, and then uh, Le'olam. And this is probably what the... Uh, the, the Beit Yosef was written in the 1500s. So historically, um, we have a source for the order of our tefillah, the Svaradim, today. And it's a very reliable source. It's the Beit Yosef. And so our Sidurim today reflect exactly what shows in the Beit Yosef. Um, so I saw a Moroccan source, which I de- which gave a reason, perhaps, why we put Eludvarim after the Akedah. And he says that perhaps because Hashem gave us infinite Rachmanut and infinite Chesed in order to, um, from the Akedah and throughout the Galut and hopefully through the Gula, so too it's our obligation to do mitzvot, which have infinite measure. So the, the Mishnah of Eludvarim discusses um, all of the mitzvot, which have infinite measure. So it's in front of you in the Sidur, but I also printed it out. It comes from a Mishnah and Peah. Maybe I'll, you know, let's read it from the, let's read it straight from the Mishnah, um, over here on the top. There's a few mitzvot, says the, says the Mishnah, 
which have no measure min ha-Torah, meaning that when the Torah, the, the Torah gave us this mitzvah, it never gave us a measure for how much we should do, how little we should do. One of them is peyah, uh, which is what the Masechta actually deals with, which is leaving a corner of your field for a poor person. It could be any amount. It could be one stalk. It could be half the field, whatever you want. Vehabikurim, this is the first basket that you would bring of the Shivat HaMinim, uh, also described in the Torah that you, you could bring a basket of the first fruits. doesn't say how much, as much as you want. ayon, which is the um, appearance in front of the Beit HaMikdash thrice yearly. So there's no, there's no uh, um, strict amount of time you have to be there for the Shalosh Regalim. You could be there a minute, you could be there two days, but that's the mitzvah, there's no uh, concrete limit. Also, regarding the Karbanot, there's areas where there's no limit to what you bring um, when you come up to, uh, when you come for the Shalosh Regalim. Gumilut chasadim, and acts of loving kindness, or acts of kindness in general. So the Ramam here likes to point out that when it comes to kindness with your money, when it comes to kindness with your your wealth and your resources, there is a shiur. That, we know there's a shiur. You, you can't give more than a fifth of your property. Um, Chazal uh, strictly point out a shiur. However, when it comes to acts of kindness, which are, when it comes to acts of kindness, which are between man and his fellow, which are just, you know, um, whether it's bikur cholim, whether it's uh, smiling at somebody, any normal act of kindness, there's obviously no measure to that, and it's a chiyuv on all of us, which has... No measure, no minimum. Doing the smallest favor for somebody is a mitzvah. Doing the biggest favor for somebody is a mitzvah. And finally, v'talmud Torah. And learning Torah, of course, has no measure. Then, the Mishnah continues, and it says, Eilu dvarim she'adam ochel peroten be'olam hazeh. That a person eats their fruits in this world. Ve'hakeren kayemet lo le'olam haba. However, the principle remains for him in the future world. Kibud ha've'em, gemilut chasadim. So honoring your parents, doing kindness, making peace between friends, and learning Torah is connected to all of them. Fine, that's the Mishnah. So a simple understanding of the second part of the Mishnah, a really simple understanding, is that on the one hand you get um, you get schar in, in Olam Haba, you get schar in, in the next world, but there's also special bonuses in this world that you can get perks in this world for doing them. That's a simple understanding. However, the word perot and keren in Hebrew are economical terms. One is the principal, one is the prophet. And as we know with principal and prophets, the prophet emerges from the principal. It's an emergent property of the principal. So if you think about it more deeply, that means that the consequences of somebody's actions in this world can have emergent um, consequences or it can cause other consequences in this world and in the next world. So for example... Even though, if let's say there are some mitzvot, which you're going to get your schar for them in Shemayim, but that schar is going to produce profits. For example, let's say I um, encourage somebody to be Shomer Torah mitzvot more, or I encourage somebody to learn more. So I get schar for that mitzvah, but also it's going to reap profits. And upon, it's going to, what's the word, uh, cumulative uh, dividends, where they compounded it, it's going to compound its interest. All those, all those mitzvot are going to compound. Furthermore, there are deeds in this world that you could do them, and whether it's kiburav, whether it's speaker cholim, and they cycle back and they and they do you favors as well. You do a favor for one person, you set a good example for some people, and eventually the payrolls come back. So there's consequential or caused um, bonuses which can happen to you, and those those 
causes, sorry, those cause things could be spiritual, those cause things could be physical, but the principle schar remains for you in Olam Haba, doesn't change, all we do is we get a compound profit. So the reason it points this out is because that's not true with Averot. With Averot, Hashem does not um, connect caused things to the principle Avera. It's, a, it's an act of kindness. Generally speaking, I mean, just uh, justifiably speaking, if you're thinking in pure justice, a person should be responsible for the for all of the consequences of his actions, but Hashem doesn't really um, take it past a certain level. It could be discussed, but Tzachar Vonash is a very, meaning reward and punishment is a very broad topic, and we could spend, uh, I don't know, the rest of our life studying it, so we're going to just leave it at that. That's what the Mishnah is discussing. Um, actually, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a Gemara and Kiddushin in, in Lametesma uh, Beis, which uh, brings an alternate opinion, not like our Mishnah. And he says, Rabbi Yaakov Amar, schar mitzvah leka, which means there is no schar given for our mitzvot in this world. So the obvious question is that the Torah says that you should honor your parents. I think the word is, or maybe that's Shiloh HaKain, or we, we say in Shema, that Hashem is going to give us great crops and great you know, bounty. A lot of things in the Torah sound like he's going to give us reward in this world. So Rabbi Yaakov has to interpret all of those things to mean that you're going to get, meaning that they're all metaphorical, that they all mean that you're going to get longer life, quote-unquote, in the next world, more fruits, quote-unquote, in the next world. He has to reinterpret all of this, those pesukim. The Gemara attacks his view, and, and the Gemara basically con, uh, concedes that there's two views, whether or not we can get... There's the view of our Mishnah, and there's the view of Rabbi Yaakov. Um, okay, so the Nusach that we have... So here's the next the, the, the next uh, important thing, is the Gemara and Shabbat. The Gemara and Shabbat has, brings a Braita. It was basically it was said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. The same language. There's six things which a person eats their their fruits in this world, and the principle remains from in the next world. Concentrating during your during your davening, and waking early to go learn in the Beit Hamidrash. Um, in the olden days, this used to mean that they would go straight from the Beit HaKnesset when they were done davening, and then they would go to Beit HaMedrash because they were separate. They, they made them separately. A person who raises his son to Talmud Torah, these six things, um, a person who judges his friend favor, favorably, will um, translate into fruits in this world and reward in the next. So our Nusach in our Sidurim is a mixture of these of these two. If you look, we'll see, you'll see the second part. It says, and Ashkenazim have a similar version. It's a little different. Um, I think they, there says Beit Hamidrash, and they add Danet Kolam Lekavshut. Whatever the Nusach is. Some people try to extrapolate. They try to give a, like, shut them over why we say specific ones, why we say this one first, this one second on the Nusach of the Sidur. I saw a few shut them about it, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't personally very convinced because these things evolve and these were sourced from a, a Mishnah and a Brayta and a couple of other Brayta throughout Shas. So it's very possible it just evolved, like, which ones they chose in the Siddur. So there's nothing, 
There was nothing that we could say concretely as to what was the new sach that was canonized by the Anshiknesat HaGdola because most likely the Anshiknesat HaGdola did not put this in our tefillah. It was put much later in the time of either the Rishonim or the Goanim. Okay, um, the next part, right after Elod Varim, if we're not in the uh, Moroccan uh, version, the Moroccans say something which has been said for a thousand years, It's a, a parak and tilim. We'll get to that when we get to that. Um, it's uh, the Tamanim say before Baruch Shamar. The next part of the tefillah is Le'olam Yehei Adam Yerei some Sidurim actually don't have this first sentence. The first sentence starts off, it's a long tefillah, which speaks about how a person should um, behave in front of Hashem, then, it's, then it, then it um, speaks to Hashem directly, like, who are we, what are we, what suchus do we have to even pray to you? However, even though we're nothing, we still have, we still have the ability to say, and we still have the ability and the cherished ability to say Shema Yisrael. Then it culminates with Shema Yisrael. Right? That's the tefillah, and then it ends with the praise of Hashem, that He is one before the world was created, He was one after the world was created. That's the whole tefillah. So we're going to get through it piece by piece. The first sentence is by far, not by far, but one of the most interesting sentences. It starts off that, for le'olam, at all times, a person should fear heaven in private as he does in public. And he should be, he should be able to confess the truth. And he should speak truth in his heart. And he should awaken and say, and then it begins the rest of the tefillah. We don't come to you before you from our good deeds. Um, we were, we're falling. We, we throw down our supplications before you for your, for your abundant mercy. And the rest, the rest of the tefillah. So most... Let's first talk about where it's placed. With the, with the Sfaradim, most of us, till today, um, we put this tefillah after the Korbanot. Um, I'm sorry, before the Korbanot. When um, some of the ancient Sidurim, like Machsar Vitri, um, some of the ancient Sidurim, I think of Yehuda ben Yakar, Machsar Vitri, and in Mainz and Frankfurt, they had this minhag, they would say it after the Korbanot. So they would say this entire thing, Le'olam, after the Korbanot. Fine, that was the Minhag. Makes makes no, no big difference. But today we all do it before Korbanot. Um, actually, the, the Tamanim say it after Tamid. So yeah, you could call that after the Korbanot. So the version that we have of the Olam Adam actually has a source. Not all the Tefilot, obviously, were written by the Anshik Nesatagadola. Some were added in later. The one we have, that this version of the Olam Adam comes from a Medrash called Tana Devei the Medrash of Tana Eliyahu is controversial as to where what its origin is. It's called the the learning of the house of Eliyahu. So who was Eliyahu? There's two opinions. One is that it's Eliyahu Hanavi. And Eliyahu, there's a story in the Gemara, I believe it's in Ketubot, which says that one of the Amoraim named Rabbi Anan received a, a revelation of Eliyahu Hanavi who came and taught him Torah. He taught him to say they're all the... Seder Olam Rabbah, I believe, and the and the and the Zuta, the 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 large Eliyahu Rabban Eliyahu Zuta. He taught him the first part and the second part of this um, medrash, 
And the Gemara around Shas quotes this Medrash, and the version of the Tanavil Eliyahu that we have has all those verse, all those things that the Gemara quotes. So many of our are of the opinion that the version, the Medrash book that we have called Tanavil Eliyahu, is the authentic um, teaching from Eliyahu and Avitur because we find the rest of the place in Shas that it quotes Tanavil Eliyahu, and it matches up with the version we have. Others learn that. Devei Eliyahu was the base medrash of one of the Amoraim whose name was Abba Eliyahu. And basically it was the medrash of his Beit Midrash. Um, how they reconcile the Gemarot is, again, a, a more technical thing. So in it, the, the tefillah is sourced there after it's discussing a pasuk which we looked at two weeks ago. Remember when we looked at Tikkun Chatzot, the pasuk said, Kumi roni Come, let's sing joyously. Um, at the beginning of the watches of the angels, um, pour your your palms, uh, spread your palms before Hashem. Um, lift your hands to Him. Um, basically, uh, cry for the um, for the starving, the fainting, um, fainting children in the streets who are. Who are starving for uh, for food? So that's the literal meaning of the pasuk in Echa. The midrash over there says that they weren't starving. For, it's it's really a metaphor. They were starving. It means starving for Torah. Eventually, in the midrash, he gives a shot on this, and he says that Mikanamru. From this, we said Le'olam Adam That uh, I'm, I'm sorry. The Girsah in the Tanat is actually Le'olam Adam he should he should have a complete fear. That's the version that we have. All the Rishonim had a version which said Yirei Adam Beseter. Our version that we have today says Yiragimura, a full Yira. And so, because the Rishonim and all the Poskim quoted the version which says Yirei Adam Beseter, that's how we have it in our Sidurim. However, that's what it says. From this pasuk, or from here, we learn. Um, we this is why they said uh, this. Uh, this is why they said Lo Adam Adam from this from from this pasuk. So it doesn't really flow well in the midrash. The, you know, the people who give up shot. They're like, okay, maybe it's talking about the value of learning Torah. So it moved over to this, uh, which somehow talks about Torah. It doesn't really flow very well. The Shibole Haleket was one of the Rishonim or Bitzgiyaharofe. He had a version of the Enemisora. Of the Tanad Veliyahu, which said it differently, it said, "The Aloto Hadar Amar, a Hadur Hadar Amar," and on that generation, it says, "Leolam Yehadam Yirei Shemayim Maseiter Kavagaloi." On that generation is what we said this, like randomly. What generation? He had a misora that was talking about the generation where there was a quote unquote Sha'at Hashmad, where there was a time of uh, religious persecution. And they were being persecuted, and they weren't allowed to say Kriyat Shema. Therefore, they said this entire tefillah at home in order so that they could say Shema Yisrael in secret. So, Le'olam Adam is referring to a time period in Kla Yisrael where they secretly had to say Shema Yisrael um, at home before they came to Shul because they weren't allowed to say it in public. So, there's a researcher who wrote a sefer called Tikkun Tefillah. It's, it's uh, in the Otsera Tfilot. This rabbi <laughs> loves loves a challenge, and he loves giving up shot to everything with history, sometimes to, to a fault. But 
um, he traced this incident to an incident which is brought in the in the Igeret or Shira Gaon. So he believed that this incident that the Shibali Halakit is talking about is an incident which is mentioned more prominently when we speak about Musaf Rosh, Rosh, uh, of Shabbat. So what happened was as follows. There was a king, there, there's, um, let's go back a little bit. In Kerwan, <laughs> Kerwan is in North Africa and Tunisia, in the year probably 920, 930, there was a, a community in Kerwan which sent a letter to Yigert, to Rabbi Shreer Gaon, who was the Gaon at the time, and he was the Rosh Hashiva of, of Bavel. They sent him a letter with a couple of questions. They wanted to know who wrote the Mishnah, who wrote the Gemara, what is the, 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 the Mesorah, the transmission of, uh, of the Torah, and how do we know that, it's, how do we know that the Shiva and Bavel is in charge? What is, who, who do we paskin like? What Amara'im do we paskin like? They wanted history. Who's been running this yeshiva for the past 400 years? Why should we listen to you, etc.? So Rav Shira Gaon, with his son Rav Hai Gaon, re- replied with a very famous letter called Igeret Rav Shira Gaon, the epistle of Rav Shira Gaon. He stamped it with the full authority of his office and sent it back to Karwan. So copies of it have been, it has been recopied in French and in, in, uh, in Greek, all different languages, Arabic. Um, the versions we have today are, I think, primarily the French and the... Um, and the Arabic version, I believe, the versions are not that great. However, it is one of the most, one of the most important historical documents of that era. Um, historians reference it all the time. It's a very, very important document, and he traces the the, the transmission of the Torah from the Tanaim all the way down to his present time. Who was Rosh Hashiva of of uh, Pompadisa of Sura in Bavel? Uh, the history of the Gemara, the history of who wrote it, the canonization of it, um, the whole history, he lists it, spells it out. And he also mentions a lot of the rise and fall of kingdoms and why things happened, who died, who took over, all these things. Fascinating thing. So, the end, Sof Hora'ah in the Gemara, what's called Sof Hora'ah, the end of law, the end of judgment, um, the end of Legislation, meaning the last pe- people we paskin like is Ravashi. Ravashi was the Ravashi the second, really, was the last. Ravashi was the last. Um, you're in time for an interesting story. So Ravashi was the was the last of the <coughs> of the the Amaraim that we that we that that canonized the the Gemara. So it says right after that. It recounts a story in the in, in, in the letter, and it says that in the time of Yars that Rav Nachman Bar Huna, I believe, died, and Yazdegard became king of Persia. Ya- Yazdegard, that was his name. That's how that's how it says it. So Yazdegard is familiar to anyone who learns Gemara because, and you have it right here. You have it in front of you. Uh, do I have one? Um, yeah, I do have one. So Yazdegard was mentioned in the Gemara. It says in Zvachim Daf Yotesam Abeis, Amar Ravashi, Amar Lihuna Bar Natan, Zimna Chada Havekai, Huh? Yotet? This one? So Amar Ravashi, Amar Lihuna Bar Natan, Zimna Chada Havekai, Imna Kamedi Izdegar Malka. At one point, I was standing in front of Izdegar the king, which we say today, Yazdegard, Vahave Madli Li Hemyene, and he adjusted my belt. He saw that my belt was too high and I looked a little foolish. And he adjusted it. 
and um, he lowered it. He saw it was too high, he lowered it. And he told me, It says about you that you're the nation of, of priests and, and kings. And when I came to when I came to Rav Amemar, he told me that it was uh, fulfilled with you the pasuk which says that kings will be your will be your foster fathers. That basically Yazdegard was friendly to the Jews. It says in another in another place in the uh, in another place in Gemara that Marzutra and Ravashi were part of his court. They actually frequented his court. The, the, this king of Persia. He died in about 420. He was very friendly towards the Jews. So his position, he was originally Christian, Yazdegard. But, but this is the only Yazdegard, <laughs> the first. In the Geras of Shira Gaon, when he says that Yazdegard became king, he is talking about Yazdegard II. Yazdegard I was sort of a nice guy. The only reason anyone hated him was because he loved peace so much. And he didn't like fighting wars. And so eventually, his priests and his nobles assassinated him because he wouldn't persecute who they wanted him to persecute. And um, originally he was Christian, but then he he went back. They they uh, convinced him that he had to go back to his roots, which was Persian, which was Zoroastrianism, in which they believe in quote unquote one God. Which we really know it's two gods. They believe they believe in a dual god system. So they're polytheist effectively. So they convinced Yazdegerd II to become Zoroastrian, but still he had a tremendous respect for the Jewish people, tolerance for them. And obviously he knew this pasuk because he was originally Christian and uh, possibly learned the Torah in Hebrew even. So he was a friend to the Jews. Then he died. And <laughs> let's just say the priests and nobles were a bunch of jerks. And um, what they did was that I think one of his sons rushed to the capital to take over. They said, Fadal, yeah, come. Yeah. And when he turned around, they stabbed him in the back because <laughs> they didn't want him to be king either. And, you're right, Fadal's not Persian. <laughs> then, <laughs> then another king came. I think it was Baram, one of his other sons or his nephew. And he took over. Baram died from, from war or something <coughs> like that. And then Yazdegard, his grandson, became king after that. Yazdegard II was a high, holy son of a gun. Yazdegard II wanted to persecute the Jews. He wanted to persecute everybody. He probably killed like 150,000 Christians because they didn't believe in his uh, double God system. And he instituted a takana. It says in the Gaon, in the Igarsa Shira Gaon, that he instituted a takana, two takanot. Number one, that Jews should not be allowed to keep Shabbat because he knew that was like their most religious thing that they did every week. And number two, that they should not be allowed to say Hashem Echad. Why? Because they believe in two gods. Zoroastrians were very fierce about that. There's two gods, it's not one god. So they, he made a takana, they shouldn't be allowed to say that. So. <coughs> He was so clever that he knew that Sofsman Kriyat Shema was three or four hours after sunset, sunrise, I'm sorry. So he sent guards, royal Persian guards, to the shuls to stay there for three to four hours every morning. And they would wait there to make sure that nobody said Shema Yisrael. This, for this reason, two, two things happened. Number one, they made a takana that everyone had to say Kriyat Shema at home which led to the formulation of this tefillah, that a person... Yes. So a person should be able... To, so that a person should fear Hashem in private, like in public, that when we get in secret, we should still serve Hashem. And and it culminates in Shema Yisrael, and everyone said that at home, and they said, they finished Shema. Today we don't finish the Shema. The second thing they, they, that they instituted was that 
after the guards left, they would say Shema Yisrael just so that the masses wouldn't forget that that was Alachas. So you know when they were able to do that? On Shabbat. So that's why until today in Musaf Shabbat, by Kiddushah, we say, Because the guards had already left. <laughs> it was four hours later. And so that was what they would say in the Kiddushah. Maybe they would come back from Musaf, whatever they did. That was their trick. Five years later, Yazdegard died and the Takana was abolished. They never really were able to enforce the Shabbat thing as much because it's hard to police that. Like, how are you supposed to prove that the Jew is keeping Shabbat? You know what I mean? You can't really police such a, such a, such a, an edict. So I think it was in like four... Come to your house and open the TV. Right. So in, in Igerita Shiragon, he says that Mar Baravashi, the son of Ravashi, who was alive at this time, uh, his father served under the first Yazdegard, he and I think it was Rav Sama Bar Rava, the Rav Sama, the son of Rava, they prayed, to, uh, they prayed together that he should die. And he uses a very interesting <coughs> language in the Igerita Shiragon. He says... A snake came and swallowed him where he lay. And Shibboleth Alakati has a different version. A snake came in the afternoon and swallowed him where he lay. So either the, the historians think that this means that um, that after okay after they prayed, some conspiracy happened and there was a successful assassination of Yazdegard. They think it's like a, a mistranslation of like a Persian expression or a, a Babylonian expression, which says that a snake ate somebody. Or the more awesome version is that somebody had a pet dinosaur. One of the two, but in, at the end of the day, um, Yazdegard died. And um, that was the end of that Takana. However, even though the Takana was, was Batel, they did not, they did not um, uh, usurp the Minhag. And the Minhag till today is to say this Olami Adam, and to say... Um, also, the Yazdegard I was like the golden era of... of uh, of the Jews in Bavel at that time because that was when Ravashi had the resources and the money to canonize the Talmud because you, you needed scribes and you needed a lot of resources to actually redact a full, you know, what is it, 35 volume um, set. So that was a, somewhat of a golden era and then a few years later uh, things got much worse for the Jews. Okay, so the, that was the, the, the story of the the Persian story of So in the Tanah of Eliyahu, as we mentioned, it says, um, it says, Yira right? C- complete fear. Most of the, the Rishonim had a version which simply said, that a person <laughs> should um, serve Hashem in private, in a hidden way. Now Rashi objected to this. Rashi might have seen this version, but Rashi said, we should not say this in the tefillah because if we say this in the tefillah, people are going to get the idea that you only have to serve Hashem in private, and when you're in public, you don't have to wear a kippah, you don't have to act like you're Jewish, you could fake it. Um, you, you can act like you're assimilated. So Rashi did not want people to say, he wanted to skip it or say, something like that. Therefore, to compensate, other people added, a person should um, serve Hashem in in, uh, in private, and as well in the same way that he serves Hashem in public. Some people objected to get to bagaloi because why do you need to preach to people to say 
why do you need to preach to people to say Yerat Shemayim Bagaloi? So everyone would serve Hashem in, in, in public. You know, it's not a, it's not a chidush. So one of the mefarshim, Siach Yitzchak, he, he does a brilliant defense of it, and he says it's not true. There's people who are embarrassed to appear too religious in public, and there are people who are embarrassed to be, and there are people who... There are people who wouldn't serve Hashem in private, and there are people who wouldn't serve Hashem in public. Some people, because no one's watching, they'll watch TV on Shabbat. And some people, because everybody's watching, they don't want to walk around with a kippah. You know, everyone's on their level. Some people are embarrassed of serving Hashem in public. Some people are embarrassed of being of of uh, of the opposite and of of not serving Hashem in public, and therefore they only they they do not <coughs> serve Hashem in private. Um, the iyun tefillah. So the, yeah, let's just look at the words very quickly, and we're only doing the the just to catch you up. We're only doing this first sentence here. Um, the olami heyadamir shemayim beseder. So in this thing, there's a couple things I wanted to point out. First of all, it says yurei shemayim. A person should fear uh, Hashem. The iyun tefillah points out something very smart. He says that you should know as a klal throughout Shas and throughout Mishnah there's a different and even in the Torah he brings he brings proofs from Bereshit and other places the word Yirah and the word Morah are used very specifically when it says Yirat Shemayim it means fear of heaven like Yirat Haromimut like when the highest the kind of Yirat Shemayim that we preach to intelligent people is not fear of Hashem striking you down or or Onesh that Hashem is going to punish you what we teach to intelligent people is that we have an awe of Hashem's loftiness. We have an awe of Hashem's of, ha- of God in general. From our from our conception of God, that gives us an awe of Him, and that's true yira. The more yira you have, the more um, close you stay to Hashem, and, and the less likely you are to sin. There's a lower level of yira, which is just yirat onesh, a person who's afraid of being punished, a person who's afraid of of um, of getting. Uh, any bad things happening to him, he says that's what it, that's the word mora. Mora always refers to that. And over here it says it's talking about yirat shemayim. It's talking about between a person and Hashem. It's not talking about uh, uh, the because you're afraid of consequences because we're talking about in private anyway. Mo, uh, for example, it says in the Mishnah Navot that a person yehi mora rabach kimora I believe mora rabach kimora shemayim. That your fear of your of your Rebbe should be like your fear of heaven. So, it doesn't mean that you should think your Rebbe is God. What it means is that halavai, your fear of your Rebbe should be so, should be as you should you should have the same fear of, of um, reparation of, of that something bad might happen to you. Like imagine you did a vera, you'd be afraid that something bad would happen to you. Same way with your Rebbe. And that's why the Mishnah ends, because their words, that their words are like kol. They're, they're dangerous. If you touch them, you could get burnt. The Mishnah is talking about because that's the fear we have to have of our masters. There's a, there's a Gemara which is talking about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And it says that when he was dying, um, his Talmudim came to him and they said, please give us a bracha. And he said, I give you a bracha that your mora your Yirat Shemayim should be like your Morab Sarvadam. You should fear Shemayim the way you fear people. They said, they said, Rebbe, uh, 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 I think their, their language was, 
Adkan, like, that's it? That's, that's your whole bracha? And he answered them, Vilavai. Like, Halavai, you should reach that level that, you know, your heart palpitates and you're, and you're petrified of God the way you are petrified of other people. Um, the next thing it says... Isn't also the opposite true, like... That we kind of see the opposite in a way that people are more afraid of, like let's say a boss or somebody that has authority. Yeah. Then of Hashem, I was. I hope not to say that, but like it could happen. That it could happen the other way. The yeah, other you're right. Way because Hashem is not like on top. He's here. He controls. It's abstract. It, but it, like, right, exactly. Yeah, we find we find people. Who, you're saying we find people who do the opposite. They're more afraid of humans than they are right, of God. Right. So what he's saying is that you should be as afraid of God <laughs> as you are of humans. Right. In other words, be more scared of God than you are of his of your boss. Be more scared of God than you are of of somebody who has a sword and he's and he's willing to kill you. You know, like that. That's your your fear has to be able to reach. Uh, your fear of the abstract should have to be able to reach the level of a fear of something actual that's actually in front of you, which is obviously a high level. The next thing it says is umode al haemet. This is a very interesting thing because the language of umode al haemet comes from the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, which is talking about how you know that somebody is wise. And it talks about the different ways. Sorry, I didn't print it out. I forgot to do that. But the different ways that. Um, a, a wise person argues, you know, that he answers the first question first and the last question last, and he pauses, he doesn't answer impulsively. One of the things it says is, <coughs> meaning he admits when he's wrong. That if you're, if you're arguing with a wise person, he's going to admit when he made a mistake. You know, when the, at the end of the... Uh, you've probably had arguments with intelligent people before, and you get to a point and they're like, you're right, I was wrong. That's the symbol of, of, a, of, a, of a wise person. So what exactly does that have to do with Yerat Shemaim? It's not entirely clear. Um, it could be an allusion to Vidoy. Now, when it comes to Vidoy, it's, very, it's one of the hardest things for us to do, is that is to admit that we are wrong. Because all day we give excuses for all of our, all of our sins. When we say Vidoy, we, we confess that we're doing something wrong and we're willing to, to face that truth. So, because the next words start off, and it says, Hashem Shima'a, Hashem Silacha, Hashem Hakshiva, in Le'olam. Because it continues with all that, with all the supplications, as if, um, as if it's a vidoy, it could be that's why it begins with Modeh Al Ha'emet. The next thing it says is, Vidover Emet Bilvavo. A person should speak truth in his heart. Now, when we use the word livavo, we use two, va- two vases to symbolize two hearts. Right? You have your Yeser Hara, your Yeser Atov, you have your inside personality and your outside personality. The Gemara brings this, pas- this there's a pasuk which in, in Tehilim, which says, Dover it's in me, it's in the, in the, literally in the thing right before that the Moroccans say, a person who speaks truth in his heart. The Gemara says that that vidover emet bilvavo. What's a good example of that? Is Rav Safra, or one of the Amoraim. Why is that a good example? Rashi explains that there's a she'ilta from Rav Achai. Rav Safra once wanted to sell a product. He, he needed money. He was going to sell a product. 
and he wanted a hundred dollars, a hundred whatever for it. He wanted a hundred uh, zuz, rubles, zuz, whatever he wanted. And he had a buyer. The buyer didn't wanted it for eighty. He wasn't. They didn't agree. Fine. One day he needs money more badly. He decides to sell it to the guy for eighty <coughs> for for eighty dollars. The guy shows up that day while he's reading Kriyat Shema, and the guy asks him again. The guy wanted to pay a hundred. Now the guy was like, "Oh, I need the. I really need the product. I want to pay a hundred. So the guy came to him, right? The guy came to him and he says, um, "Do you still have your thing for sale for a hundred? And he didn't uh, for eighty. Uh, I want to buy it from eighty. And he didn't answer because he was doing Kriyat Shema. And then he said, "You know, I'm willing to give it to you for a hundred." Safra finished, and he sold it to him for 80 because he already agreed to sell it. So that's the example that it gives for Vidover Elmetz Bilvavo, that a person is inside like his outside, that he's honest with himself and how he um, relates to others as to what he was actually feeling, what he was actually thinking. This was, all of these things are exceptionally pertinent to a time when they were being persecuted religiously and they had to practice Judaism privately. For them, these were of exceptional importance because you could be burnt at the stake for saying you didn't believe God is one. Um, you could be if, if you if you said you believed that God is one, you could, um, yeah, you could suffer dearly for for um, behaving Jewish. And so this is the kind of tefillah that was written by people who needed to reinforce their their religiosity to you know to serve Hashem <coughs> in a in a integral way in a way which was full of integrity and not one that was, you know, mixed up with conflicts and contradictions and personal and, you know, personal uh, uh, contradictions. And that's actually where I think we'll end this uh, this section. We'll continue next time with Ribon HaOlamim, Badone HaDonim, which is the rest of the, really just the rest of the Olam. We'll, we'll move through it as slowly as we can because it's actually a very, very amazing tefillah the whole every section of, of Leolam yeah Ribbon Olamim it's a beautiful tefillah we're going to have to go through it piece by piece Bezat Hashem will do it uh, next week we'll see how far we get I always ask like